Tonight we're going to be in 2 Samuel 10. And the last time we saw King David's strong hand when it came to the enemies of Israel and defeating them, but the same leader also had a gentle hand when it came, with, came to dealing with Mephibosheth, the last, one of the last people from Saul's house. Uh, tonight we're going to look at this strange situation of really misunderstanding, paranoia, and foolishness that had deadly consequences. Uh, I'm going to go through a parallel scripture in 1 Chronicles 19. It parallels this account, gives us a little bit more information. So at times where I add something that you say, well, I didn't see that in there, it's in 1 Chronicles 19. I like to get as much information as I can. Even when I go through the Gospels, I like to put all four of them together and present the chronological order. Uh, I think it really gives us a greater understanding. Now, actually, when I teach again in April, really good portion of Scripture. Uh, it's going to be uh, 2 Samuel 11, which is, most people know, David's sin with Bathsheba. However, it wasn't just his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, it, was, it spiraled into, it snowballed into something horrific, where murder was involved and deceit, cover up, and then finally the Lord had to get David's attention through Nathan. But I think that, not I think, I know that there's some really good applications for us. Sometimes we tend to look at the scripture and say, well, 40,000 people were killed in this one battle, and when David sinned, people were murdered, but I'm so insignificant. You know, our sin has consequences too. It has consequences to our own lives, and it has consequences to those that we love and those that are around us. So let's not waste our time by reading the Bible and not making an application uh, for our own lives. That's what it's here for. Right. So starting with verse 1. And it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Then the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. So this is, um, again, we saw prior the king, leadership has to have many different qualities. They have to be in balance. Uh, we saw the grace and the discipline that David had. And here, he tries to do the right thing, so he thinks diplomatically, when King Nahash dies, for those that you know are grieving the death of, of, of Nahash. So David sends, uh, he sends ambassadors to comfort the royal family. Probably he sent gifts as well. This was common protocol and practice. Now here's, what's the response? The, the response is the princes of Ammon instilled paranoia in the heart of the new king, Hanan, and he takes the bait. And as a result, he humiliates Israel's ambassadors. Now, I've spoken before about insecure leaders. Uh, just do a study on some of them. They usually become tyrants when they gain full power. Um, sometimes we look at World War II as the greatest you know, purging of humankind. But if we go back further into the early 1900s, in Russia alone, many tens of millions of people were killed because of Stalin 
and insecure leaders. So that's a dangerous, dangerous combination. Uh, when you're insecure, you're paranoid, and you want to just make sure you eliminate any competition. So Hanan, the king, fears that David's ambassadors are really spies, and this sets a chain of events in motion that ends up killing tens of thousands of people. I mean, this was what we might consider a sophomoric, humiliating stunt. But if you understand the culture, it was more than that. Obviously, half their beards are shaved off, and their garments are cut in such a way that their butt cheeks are sticking out, for lack of a better word. So it's humiliating. Um, so humiliating that they send to David and say, we don't even want to come back to Israel. Obviously, they could probably change their clothes, but there's a significance of half the beard being cut off. So David allows them to wait until their beards grow back and, of course, change their clothes. But we can look at this a little deeper, all right? The obvious, uh, to cut the pants so the buttocks are showing, um, it's humiliating. Uh, Furthermore, when a conquering army back then would conquer uh, another army, they would, when they would finally conquer them, maybe to spare their lives, they would often have them strip naked and chain them and lead them out like that, completely humiliating. So there's one aspect of this, and you'll see a common denominator here. The other issue, believe it or not, with the beard, might have been an even bigger insult, because what it does is it shows mastery over the person. You know, the Jews grew their beard, and it was cultural, and it had a lot of significance. So to hold them down and force to shave half of their beard off was completely humiliating. Um, you would treat, or they would treat, a slave that way. You could do whatever you wanted with a slave. They were your property. Uh, so that's the abuse that they were showing to these two ambassadors. The common denominator in both, believe it or not, was a preamble to war. It was an act of war. It was making a, a clear statement to Israel. And David takes the bait. You know, when you look at Hanan and you look at his cabinet, certainly if I digress for a moment, we can look at our lives as well and, and make an application. I would say that beware of those who try to manipulate you into paranoia and suspicion about somebody else. Certainly if they're showing you kindness, just receive the kindness. We're not to go around being paranoid all the time. Also, not to be a fool whose mind is easily warped by another, especially if we're a believer. If we're believers, we need to have our wits about us and have mastery over our emotions and control over our mind. Sometimes you just have to cut ties with people like that. Hanan would have been better served if he would have said, what are you guys trying to get me into a war over this? Look, they sent gifts, they, they came over here, so don't show them the whole palace if you're that concerned. He would have been better served if he would have just cut off his cabinet and said, I'm not listening to this type of, of counsel, it's crazy. But he kept them. Um, and the after effects of this caused many lives to be lost. I want to read James 3. I want to digress, move to the New Testament. Two verses, James 3, 5 and 6, just to show how dangerous the tongue is. Actually, I'll start a little bit earlier. I'll start with verse 2. He says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man or a mature man, also able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at also with the ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. 
Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of sin, iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And I'll stop there. Again, <laughs> well, this is many thousands of years ago. Look, there were big consequences. What does it really have to do with my life? Everything. You know, see what a forest fire uh, starts from a little fire. We see this all the time in these wildfires that rage. That's a great example. It's the same thing with the tongue. When the, when the tongue starts talking and people start listening, there's a, a chain of events and a snowball, and sometimes you can't stop that snowball. It turns into an avalanche as it comes down the hill. So for us, well, maybe we don't, because of our tongues, 40,000 people don't lose their lives. However, it may be that there's a church split because of the tongue. It may be that we hurt somebody irreparably. It may be that we destroy relationships. So this is a, a good sidebar here. Um, this happened also to Solomon's son uh, when he was going to take over the kingdom and because he had uh, counselors too, and we'll get to that, that said, I don't worry about the people. You know, raise their taxes, make things difficult on them. And Israel split in two, uh, pretty much as a result of that. Poor counsel. Let's be careful when we hang out with people, even church people. What kind of people are we hanging out with? Are they always running their mouths? Are they always talking about somebody else? Are they busybodies? Well, we need to depart from people like that. Because all they will do is they'll drag us down with their folly as well. And I've seen it, and I know the pastors here and elders have seen it too, too many times. Um, happens way too often. So going back to the Old Testament, verse 6, 2 Samuel 10. So when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from King Mecha, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah, Rehob, Ishtab, and Mechab were by themselves in the field. So what happens when the Ammonites find that King David is furious? Do they repent? Of course not. They, do they try to appease him? No, they don't. Do they send terms of peace? No. They make matters worse. How? By, by hiring the Syrian mercenaries to the tune of about 33,000 Syrians initially to fight David's men. And in 1 Chronicles 19, it said that the Syrians were paid 1,000 talents of silver to fight. So they were mercenary. They were hired guns, so to speak. Why is repentance so important when we sin? Because when we do something wrong and we sin, it can snowball out of control. And I think that we, we learn this here. It hurts ourselves. It can hurt our reputation. We could take 30, 40, 50 years to build a reputation and destroy it in one incident. People aren't very forgiving. So we hurt ourselves and we also hurt those around us. Repentance stops the cancer in its tracks. It's better than being pushed over the cliff. 
I liken it to uh, when you're kind of walking on a path and you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. And this is, with every step, it's getting worse and worse. Repentance is realizing the folly, the sin, the issue with what we're doing and stopping in our tracks and not just giving lip service, I'm sorry, saying whatever we have to say to get out of trouble, but actually to do about face and start moving towards the right direction again. It stops that avalanche in its tracks. Verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of the choice men of Israel and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, and they entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. So we kind of get a little insight into this military strategy, which I find fascinating. The more I read the Old Testament, you you see some of these maneuvers that are still used today. And, you know, they study this stuff at West Point and, you know, other military schools. It's actually fascinating. So what's going to happen is Joab's forces are going to go against the Syrians. Joab was a hardened, tough military commander. Didn't always make good spiritual decisions. But David kept them on. And Abishai was to go against the Ammonites. And if Joab and his forces get pounded... From the Syrians, Abishai was supposed to send men to help, and vice versa, if Abishai has problems with the Ammonites. We can look at this two ways. Number one, it's hard to say who precipitated what. Did the Israelites purposely try to do a wedge formation to keep the two forces from uniting? Well, they really were coming from different directions. Or did the enemy do what's known today as the pincer movement? Now, the pincer movement, if you're a World War II fan, really was the turning point in stopping the German army. Because what happened was in the Battle of Stalingrad, when the German forces came towards the Russians, they actually fanned out and they made a wide arc. And as the Germans were coming in, they they pinched the, the army, the supply lines, and that was the end of the mighty German Sixth Army. So this was called the pincer movement. If you read about it, it's really pretty fascinating. Very simple. Uh, Actually, the German army was far superior militarily, but the Russians did such a smart maneuver that they were able to turn the tide of the war. In another sense, again, the Israelites might have, you know, Joab said, listen, let's divide and conquer. So I'm not really sure who started what, but either way, this is what's going on here. What happened, though, the Syrians ended up starting, they were starting to lose and uh, that demoralized the Ammonites because the Syrians were the hired guns. And they, these guys are the professionals. So as they started to lose, the Ammonites started to lose heart. And, of course, the children of Israel ended, ended up winning. Now, I want to read verse 12 again. Job says, Be of good courage, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Joab prepares for battle. But he leaves the results up to God, and I love that. This is a great combination of human responsibility and trusting God's sovereign will and power. 
Proverbs 22, 3, one of my favorites, says, The wise man sees danger and prepares, but the fool does nothing, and he's punished for it. You know, we do have responsibility even as believers. And sometimes today I even hear from Christians that they want God to do everything. Well, God does not respond to lazy. God wants us to be determined. He gave us a brain so that we can use it. You know, he wants us to go in his will. He wants us to pray through things and do things according to his word. On the other hand, as Pastor Mike was, uh, when he goes through Genesis with Jacob, Jacob kind of was the opposite. Here was a guy who was a go-getter. He was a conniver. He was a weasel. <laughs> he was a supplanter. And uh, even when he was wrestling, uh, you know, the Lord had to strike his hip socket and the muscle shrinks and Jacob had a, a limp the rest of his life. Because Jacob tried to do everything. So God has to deal with those people too. There's got to be a nice balance between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. That's, life is a combination between both of them. Verse 15. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated before Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadazar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, uh, or the Euphrates River, and they came to Helam. And Shobak, the commander of Hadadazar's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobak, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. So the battle kind of goes in two different directions. Well, in the first instance, with this wedge formation, all right, Again, the enemy army is demoralized. They start to flee. Then what happens is the, uh, many of them go into the city and, the, and they redeploy. They start pulling Syrians from across the Euphrates. Syrian was actually a very, Syria was a very mighty nation at one time, uh, pretty much, I think, almost a world power. So they start to redeploy the men. They pull them from different stations in different areas, and they fight a second time. Uh, and, of course, David now is, is part of this. And this is interesting because when we read the next chapter, which, again, chapter delineations came later, uh, there is this kind of surge and then a, a regrouping and then a surge again and the, uh, the sieging of the city. And at some point, uh, David just kind of takes his ease. He thinks that everything's going to go well, and that's when he finds himself getting into big trouble. And we'll cover that next time. So the Syrians and the Ammonites make one last stand, and they're defeated pretty badly. Lessons learned. Well, let's start with leadership. And as we look at the king, Hanan, a lot of blood was on his hands. Uh, but we can also look at our own lives in a, in a smaller sense as well. So there's a lesson for everybody. Number one, King Hanan listened to bad advice from his advisors. Sometimes we listen to bad advice. Sometimes we listen to people who talk too much, tell a one-sided story. They're mean-spirited or they're bullying others. God help us. I, mean, I took the oath of office 22 years ago uh, to become a police officer to fight bullies. And um, I don't like bullies. I don't like to see bullies among Christendom either. It's not pretty. The cliques and the, the meanness and the pecking order, it's not good. So there's a lot of good lessons for us. 
King Hanan misinterpreted the good intentions of King David's ambassadors. Do we ever misinterpret things? You know, in the age of technology, it's very easy. So if we get a, uh, a text, sometimes we misinterpret that text. Before that, it was the emails. You get an email and it's not in, in the proper uh, context. You can misinterpret that without the inflection. You get an email and you get upset with somebody. Or even Facebook, some posts on Facebook. You know, I, I've heard things and seen things and, and I've just had discussions with people and said, I'm not going to war over Facebook. I'm going to ask somebody what they meant before I get angry over this kind of stuff. So we can misinterpret things as well. You know, um, and I think that we use, I guess you call them emoticons. Sometimes when I send an email or a Facebook thing, I put the smiley face so people don't think I'm saying something that they get, they get upset with. Or you ever find somebody who, who puts the caps locks on and they send you a, an email with caps locks? You think that they're angry. So we, we, we associate caps locks with anger. Sometimes it's the truth. Sometimes it's not, you know. <laughs> There's a commercial about that, FedEx commercial. That <laughs> too is pretty funny. King Hannon made the problem way worse by not repenting. He couldn't admit he was wrong. If you've been a Christian long enough, I've been there. When we don't step, step back and try to defuse the situation and repent, we make matters worse too. He made it even worse by not only repenting but upping the ante by employing the Syrians. Have we ever employed the Syrians in our little personal battles? Right? In a, in a smaller level? Uh, have we ever escalated the dialogue? I'm sure we have. He didn't repent, and as a result, tens of thousands of people died. Okay, so maybe in our lives we don't have that much power. However, have we had the occasion to hurt relationships, uh, to hurt people's feelings, to cause uh, situations where a marriage now is, is fragile? So even on a small level, we can do things that are hurtful because we're not repentant. And I titled the message, Repentant or Repulsive. It's a, it's a very odd title, but that's the truth. When we do something pretty bad, if we don't repent, and we go the way of King Hanan, we become repulsive. We become repulsive to everyone around, around us. Uh, if we do wrong, and we don't repent, I mean, even as, as, as human beings, you know, we, we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we don't know God and we don't repent and we don't believe in Jesus or trust him as our Lord and Savior, we're repulsive to God. He doesn't have to listen to our prayers. He's provided a sacrifice for us to be cleansed from our sins. If we say, no, I don't want that, then we're still under judgment. So we are repulsive. So if you don't know the Lord, and it's something to consider, please talk to me afterwards. Because we, we need to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the only way to pass. I was watching, um, they the, have the Bible stories that have been coming out. And it was on a different channel. And I'm like, I think it was two, last night or two nights ago. It was about Moses. They did a really good job. And I, I'm watching the whole thing with the Passover and the blood of the lambs. And man, sometimes this artistic liberty can really bring out the flavor of the scripture. And I'm like, oh, I see Jesus all over that. You know, and... And Moses, you know, again, it's artistic liberty. He's talking to Aaron, and he says, God is bringing death tonight. And he says, to us too? He said, yes, if we don't have the blood covering the doorposts and the lintel. You know, that sacrifice, death came, and it was the special effects were really neat. But we're repulsive to God if we're not covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. That's important. 
So even if we're wronged in a situation, we can still respond improperly. At what point do we stop fighting and trying to get our way and just repent? I hope that as we read the scripture, and, and this theme of repentance or repulsive, uh, it's going to play out in chapter 11 as well. But I do hope as we go through these scriptures and we read the mess-ups of other people, man, my father used to say to me, human beings are the only animals that don't learn from their parents' mistakes. I think that was, he said things directly to me and then he said things veiled, but that might have been a combination and I was young back then. Uh, but he's right. Sometimes we have to find out the hard way. But my desire is that as we look at the scripture and again look at others that have, have walked these paths and needed to repent but didn't and became repulsive, that we remember this when it's time for us to repent because God always forgives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the lives of these men and women that have gone before us and we're thankful that you've immortalized these lessons in scripture. I think about even, we're going to talk Sunday about Peter, who denied the Lord three times. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny that all four gospel writers put Peter's mess-ups in their gospels.